show it's friday you made it folks congratulations the end of yet another week it is may the 6th year of our lord 2022 continues to roll along i'm andrew donaldson thank you so much for joining us on her tell a lot of stuff going on out in the world today we're going to talk about it on a couple of different fronts a great piece that my friend dennis saunders who's been on this program frequently we'll have him on again he's written in ordinary-times.com about the nastiness and his word stupid I agree with him, way that our discourse has devolved on social media, but he doesn't think it's social media's fault. He thinks it's our fault, and he talks about how we've lost the concepts of big tents and inclusivity. But also, we're going to touch on this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, um, what we should and shouldn't be taking away from it. Uh, It touches on something that's relevant in all of our culture across politics and culture and stardom, fan culture, and how it will really screw up your discernment on what's going on in the world. We're going to end on a really good note. Uh, DoorDash driver who ended up saving the life of the person you were supposed to be delivering the food to and also gained a friend in the process. Talk about that in just a little bit. Great guest today, another Young Voices contributor, Elise Amido. Uh, she is going to talk healthcare with us. We're going to talk about why the American system is the way it is. It's still a great healthcare system. It's as good as anywhere in the world, but it does have a lot of issues. We don't want to overblow the problems. We don't want to underplay the challenges either. Great perspective from her. Going to talk about how the employee-based insurance system has changed American healthcare for good and bad, government regulation, how that's changed, um, how we are down the road from the Affordable Care Act, how that has changed things, and what's coming up because we do have kind of a ticking time bomb on healthcare regulation getting ready to go off. She'll explain all that. Ali Amido on her tell today. Can't wait to talk to her. You're going to really appreciate this conversation on healthcare. But first, uh, back to the issue of the day. We are still talking about abortion since the Alito draft became public knowledge. The White House, uh, reading from the Washington Post here. I'm always amazed with this White House. We have been critical of this White House. We have been critical of this president and his team over and over and over again, because in our humble but accurate opinion, they tend to go for optics and media wins instead of policy and governing. This is just, if this is accurate, what we're going to read here, this is from Yasmin Adelaide and Tyler Panger. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing those names. Writing in the Washington Post, the headline, White House scrambles for ways to protect abortion. (sighs) Reading into the piece, just a shade. Uh, In the hours after the leaked Supreme Court documents signaled Uh, Once again, folks, no such thing as a leak. It was leaked on purpose. Signaled the court was poised to overturn Roe v. Wade in the coming weeks. President Biden vowed to fight to protect access to abortion. Quote, we will be ready when any ruling is issued, uh, Biden said in a statement on Tuesday. But in marathon meetings and phone calls among White House officials, government lawyers, outside advisors, and federal agency officials, a sobering reality has settled in. There is little the White House can do that will fundamentally alter a post-Roe landscape. While officials have spent months planning for the possibility the court would overturn the landmark ruling, the leaked document caught the White House off guard. Let's stop right here. How in the world did that catch you off guard? 
Um, little old us at Ordinary Times, we've been discussing since the initial oral arguments of the Supreme Court that when this went down, it was going to be a dominant news story. We had already discussed it. Now, we expected it to be in June because usually the court holds major decisions like this to the end of the term. So we were like, well, June's going to be abortion month on Ordinary Times. That's how we're going to have to do our coverage. That's what people will be writing about. It's how we're going to have to moderate our discussion boards. We're just doing it about three or four weeks early. But it doesn't really surprise us because anybody that listened to those oral arguments, looked at the makeup of the court and looked at the arguments involved, knew that one way or the other, even if they upheld Roe or turned overturned Roe, this was going to be a big deal. So how in the world would the White House not know about it? Hold that thought. We'll be back to that in just a second. Officials are discussing whether funding or whether through Medicaid or other mechanisms could be made available to women to travel to other states for an abortion, according to outside advisors who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe internal discussions. But many doubt whether that is feasible. Congress can guarantee the abortion access nationwide by making the protections under Roe v. Wade law, but there's widespread recognition inside the White House that this path has been foreclosed for now. Democrats hold a razor-thin majority in the Senate, and key Democrats have made it clear they will not be supporting eliminating the filibuster, which would require the 60 votes. A lot of what the Biden administration could do would be window dressing and that ultimately we're going to have a system of conflicting access to reproductive health rights, depending on the state you live in, said Lawrence Gostin, director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health. Quote, this is a direct quote, and there's very little that Biden can do about that. So one of two things is going on here. Either they really were completely caught flat footed, not, unex- not unbelievable with the way this White House has conducted their business over the years. Or, and I think this is probably more accurate, they just don't know what to do and are flailing because they don't have an option here and they know this is hurting them on their base. Abortion, the reason it's so loud is because this is the issue that people feel the strongest about and are the least likely to compromise on. Now, this ruling initially, fundraising went up for Planned Parenthood. Fundraising went up for the Democratic Party. So the base of the party that is very pro-choice is going to be very engaged on this issue. The problem is it's not really going to expand past that base because not a whole lot of other people are going to come in on this issue. We talked about it before. Before this happened, Punchbowl News, we talked about it on yesterday's program. Abortion wasn't a major issue in this campaign. Now, it'll be a more important issue in this campaign for the midterms, but it's not going to take over the number one slot. The White House is trying to act like they're doing things. This is the Kabuki theater, the failure theater. Oh, look how hard we're trying. But there's almost nothing they can do about any of this. Everything's automatic now. The states, the 26 states that have laws on the books, those will go into effect. They'll be challenged in court and around and around we go again. Almost every state legislature will probably take a look at abortion if this goes down in June like we think it's going to. And the Biden administration, they're trying to substitute exertion for efficiency and governing. They're looking like they're doing a lot. They're exerting a lot of effort. They're making a lot of noise. But there's absolutely nothing they can do about this. So when the White House talks about how hard they're going to fight about it, turn down the noise, look at the policy and look at the case as it events, look at the situation as it really is and understand there's almost nothing they can do about this except do a whole lot of noise making in the media and act like they're trying to do something about it. More hotel right after this. Let me see you go off like a bomb. Welcome back to Hertel. I'm just going to touch on this briefly because it's it's really loud in the culture, but it's something that I don't care to discuss or deal with. Uh, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial 
continues to drag on and get tons of coverage. Uh, Ezra Marcus has written in the New York Times a piece that I think is well worth your attention on this topic. Go seek it out. Go find it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, Talking about how extreme fandom is a very poor mix with criminal court and complex matters like domestic violence, like drug addiction, like abusive relationships, like people who very clearly are troubled and not very good people. Um, I just want to highlight one little point that uh, they write about here. High-profile celebrity cases have drawn a wider audience ever since Court TV began broadcasting from courtrooms in the 90s. But the trial of Mr. Depp and Ms. Heard has become a case study when complex claims are filtered through the lenses of stand culture and social media. In addition to the live coverage on TV, YouTube, and various outlets and websites, countless short clips edited for maximum virality are circulated on Instagram and TikTok. Fan cams and social media parlance featuring forensic analysis of Mr. Depp and Mrs. Hurd's trial attire and courtroom exchanges that have been described as SAVAGE, all caps. Here's the deal with this. Um, extreme fandom always, without exception, clouds your judgment and your perspective. This goes for politics. It goes for Hollywood movie stars. It goes for music stars. It goes for pro wrestlers. It can go to a famous family member or a patriarch or matriarch of your family. You can have a fan culture based around them where you don't see them clearly. We've talked about that when we've dealt with abuse episodes, how those sorts of things happen. I don't get into the nitty gritty of this case for a couple of reasons. One is they, once you start going to things like domestic violence, people who have admitted drug use, things like this, it's extremely messy. That's why we have courts. Let them sort that sort of stuff out. There is no good guy here. I don't care about your fandom. If you want to parse out who was more bad, that's fine. But both of these people are bad human beings that have a wealth of problems and have done a lot of damage to themselves and to each other. I wish them better than what they have. I doubt they get the help they need, but that's my wish. But this is a very bad thing for you to take your culture and try to apply it to other things because it doesn't really apply to anything else. It's just your fandom talking if you think one of these people is worth holding up over the other. They're both troubled. They're both horrible people when you actually look at what they're doing to each other here. Fandom is dangerous. It comes from fanatic. And you don't ever want to be a fanatic about another human being because no matter who that human being is, they're just as flawed as you are. They put their pants on just like you do. And if you start hitching your wagon to their star, you're always going to wind up astray 10 out of 10 times. Turn down your fandom, whether it's a politician, whether it's Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, whether it's whoever else. Get a wide perspective. Don't ever get looped into fandom and make sure you can keep your head. So when something happens that is extremely complex, like a domestic violence case, like the accusations that go on in the Amber Heard case with Johnny Depp and how they are treating each other and clearly have been in a toxic, brutal, awful relationship that neither one of them should have been in. You can parse it out, stand back and go, no, that's a whole lot of bad mess and there's no good there. Instead of weeding into the muck knee deep and starting trying to parse out what's good and what's not. Because from a distance, when people look at you, all they see somebody's messing around in the muck. More hurt tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell, Manu Donaldson. This is going to be good. We're going to talk a little healthcare. Another of our great Young Voices contributors, uh, Elise Amedro. I didn't say disease. I practiced hard on it. Uh, great 
writer. Uh, she's been writing about healthcare stuff. Ma'am, how are you? Thank you so much for the time today. I'm doing great. It's good to be here. It is. I appreciate your time very much. Let's start big picture before we delve into some of the writing you've been doing. Um, I want to do a little perspective because we we seem to have some really well-worn worn narratives in American media, especially the news media, especially social media, about our healthcare system. Give us a little bit of perspective, though, because, you know, if you listen to Twitter, people are dying in the streets and it's horrible and it's the worst healthcare system ever. And or there's people like, yay, the free market is the best thing ever. We know neither of those is true. Um, you spent a lot of time overseas. You spent time in America. What would you say the actual state of our healthcare system is? Because it's kind of been, and you wrote about this, it's been pretty static since the ACA, uh, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it. Not a lot has changed. So what's the current status of our healthcare system if you take an objective viewpoint of it? Yeah, objectively, we spend a lot of money on healthcare in the U.S. The government does and the private sector does. So I think the biggest lie that people believe is that this is a free market. Uh, healthcare is by no means a free market. There are about one in two dollars in healthcare that comes from the from the public sector. So we're really not in a free market system now. There is more uh, market involvement here, perhaps, than in the rest of the world in, in many places. But that doesn't mean that the private sector here is unimpeded either. There are lots of healthcare regulations, and I think those two things together, the fact that there's a lot of regulations and still a lot of control from the public sector that actually drives up our prices. So we spend more, that is very true. We spend more money per capita on healthcare than any country in the world, um, but that's not the full story. It's not because of the free market. There, there is so much more going on. And, and part of it is just that the, the government has done such a great job getting involved in every single aspect of our healthcare system. And that's really the two-edged sword when we're talking about healthcare in America right now, isn't it? Is that there's all this money involved, but there's also all these strings about where the money goes. And then when you go to the private sector side, there really is some really definitive funnels of where all the money goes and where's the, where the money is to be made, just to be frank about it. How unique is that to the world, though? And I, I know people talk about things like socialized medicine or single payer or European style or whatever you want to talk about. How unique in the world is our system of healthcare, where we have both of those and we have this absolute river of money going through it? And we have generally pretty good health care, but the problem is we're not really getting the bang for the buck for it, are we? No, that's absolutely correct. The, to, to go back in history a little bit, in the 40s, we started having uh, wage controls uh, due to the war, and that's when employers started offering health care. That's a pretty unique thing in the world. There are very few countries where employers offer health benefits to employees, and that came about because um, they couldn't raise the wages, so they just offered new benefits. After the war, we solidified this, so we codified it in the law. The IRS says employers are exempt from taxation whenever they provide you know, that, that money that they give of the wages to their employer, employees for health benefits does not go um, taxed. Uh, but past that, in the 60s, we realized, wait, not everyone's an employee. Some people um, cannot work uh, because they have disabilities, um, and some people are too old to work. They're retirees. And so what do we do for, for those people? And that's when um, uh, Medicaid and Medicare came into the picture. And we started you know, involving the government much more in, in our healthcare system. And so over time, that actually has led to a huge number of people being covered by Medicaid and Medicare. And while like, our quality remains very high, like it, it, you're, you mentioned earlier, people are not dying left and right. We have excellent care in the United States, despite 
all of the criticism that can be validly you know, expressed. But we've, we've seen just how much this intrusion of the government and then the way we regulate what counts as you know, coverage, what counts as um, you know, good care, uh, that, that actually has led to an increase in prices. You mentioned the history of it going back to the 40s. I, it seems to me, because I tend to put history on a lot of the things I deal with, even if it's an economic or a political or a healthcare issue like this is, and this is all three of those wrapped into one, the post-World War II era really shaped America as it is now. That's where we got the explosion in population. We got the explosion in economic growth. And that's when the healthcare system became, well, we have all this com- competition for jobs. So all these jobs started offering healthcare benefits because they were competing for all these people and for all this economic growth. Well, we're 60, 70 years down the road from there. Does that model still work in America? Because that's the model as it's set up. The government's doing a lot of patching of the holes between that. But is the base assumption of, well, the employers are going to provide health care. That's really where the debate is on all this, isn't it? It is. And there are several issues now. Like you said, over time, the situation has devolved into something that's not really sustainable. On the one hand, because healthcare costs has, have grown so much, um, we have, a, you know, we have a hard time providing health insurance to people at an affordable rate. So employers spend, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars per person for for insurance, and that's a really high cost. Like whenever you want to bring on a new employee, you bear that cost that the employee may or may not see because not not every employee pays the premiums, and most employees do not pay the full premiums. So that's a, a challenge for small businesses that want to come online. How can they afford that? Like adding this burden uh, for each employee that they bring on. And then for Medicare, when it was first um, created, people like life expectancy was around 69 years old. So people would be covered by Medicare for a few years and then they'd pass away. Currently, um, thanks to advances in, in medicine, we have much longer lives. <laughs> and so People, you know, someone who retires today has a life expectancy well into the 80s, uh, which means that we're now giving people care for, you know, 15 years, 20 years. That's very expensive and it's not sustainable at the rate that we're seeing it now. Yeah, Medicare and Medicaid is always going to be an issue. Uh, let's come up to the present moment, though. The dominant force in uh, the healthcare uh, debate and discussion and discourse has been the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Uh, we're 12 years down the road on it. We know what was promised. We know some of the jingoistic stuff like, you know, like your doctor, you can keep it. We know that part of it. But it's been static. Uh, nothing's really changed uh, demonstrably from that, despite Republicans saying they were going to repeal and replace it, which we always knew was a little bit of a uh, a song and dance, which now we have the evidence they was. 12 years on, what did it do? What didn't it do? Because that's really the framework we need to take as far as going to, okay, what's our next steps in trying to improve healthcare here, isn't it? Yeah. So one thing that it promised, or at least uh, Obama on his on the, the campaign trail in 2008 promised that he was going to cut costs for a family of four by $2,500 a year. Well, our costs have like tripled or quadrupled since this happened. So this, since we passed Obamacare. So costs have not gone down. It is not, it has not been affordable. Um, has it covered everyone? Because we were saying, you know, um, we're going to protect patients. We're going to give them coverage. But we'll still have roughly 30 million people who are uninsured. That's about one in 10 Americans. Now, some of them don't want to be insured. There are reasons why the Obamacare 
design, you know, went away at first. Everyone was supposed to have insurance or there would be a penalty. That penalty went away. Um, but still, it's not done. It's not closed the coverage gap, I could say. What we have seen is lots of people benefiting from the Medicaid expansion. So many states expanded Medicaid coverage to people who were not previously eligible, people who didn't have uh, disabilities or didn't have an income below the federal poverty level. And that's been the main way through which people have gained coverage through the ACA. Now that coverage is not great and it is also um, pricey both to the federal government and to the states without seeing great improvements in health outcomes. Yeah, talking to Elise Amidro, a Young Voices contributor uh, who works in healthcare related issues. I, I got to point out this, too, because part of the reason it's been static, that doesn't mean we're not doing things on the edges of it. In fact, the 2021 stimulus bill, the American Rescue Plan, you just mentioned COVID. Part of the COVID stimulus was they bu- they dumped a ton of money for subsidies for folks to get onto the ACA care plans. Obviously, there's a health pandemic. There's a health issue. So that makes a little bit of sense. But if we go back again, that was exactly what this was supposed to avoid. And here we are doing the money into it. Was this a gap in the policy? Was this a gap in how it was written? Or was this just one of the unintended consequences of the way the ACA was written to start with? So those benefits, these subsidies are supposed to go to people who aren't quite eligible for Medicaid because they, they earn too much, um, but or are not, you know, don't meet the criteria, but also don't have employer-sponsored insurance. Now, during the pandemic, the logic was people are losing their jobs, right? So we have to find a way to give them healthcare coverage. If they, if they have COVID, they'll need to have coverage. However, the coverage that we gave them isn't great at all. So the most affordable plans on the ACA exchanges have a deductible of $7,000, which means that when you have that kind of insurance, you need to first spend $7,000 out of pocket on your care before insurance kicks in. Most people don't have that money sitting around anywhere, especially if they're the kinds of people that you'd expect to struggle to find healthcare coverage because they're not employed. So that kind of coverage is, in my view, a, dis- a dishonest form of giving you know, insurance to people because it makes them feel like they have access to services and that they will be covered. They only realize after the fact that a lot of it was not covered or maybe all of it wasn't covered. So that was the, the logic is giving people insurance, but then we didn't really account for the, the true cost of that insurance. Um, and actually it happens that a lot of the subsidies too went to people who could very well afford um, private coverage uh, out of pocket. So during the pandemic, those subsidies were very generous and they went to people who absolutely did not need them. Yeah. And you wrote about it when you wrote a national review on this, and we're going to link to your article. We encourage people to read it. Um, the problem with subsidies when it comes to healthcare, as opposed to something like farming subsidies or whatever other subsidies you want to point to is what they've been doing with this, especially in things like the American Rescue Plan, the, they're really hiding how high the cost is with the subsidies. And that's where you get into where you're saying, look, this isn't fair to the people because, you know, you're talking about $7,000 out of pocket. We see all the data of like if a normal family would have to come up with $500 cash, like three quarters of them couldn't do it. You're talking about $7,000. That's a lot of money to a lot of people. These subsidies are hiding some real glaring gaps in this system of healthcare that we currently have, both the government side and the private sector insurance side, isn't it? Absolutely. The, and, and that's the way healthcare is interesting. Like health insurance is an odd way of paying for care. 
because most of healthcare spending goes to chronic disease. About 70% of healthcare spending is for chronic disease. And the key characteristic of a chronic disease is that it, it is chronic. <laughs> it doesn't go away, right? So when you have a chronic disease, you have to, you know, you'll need the drug this month, next month, next year, like that doesn't really change. And so when we pay for it with insurance, if you think about all kinds of insurance that we have on the market for other things like home insurance or life insurance, they protect against things that may or may not happen. Like if you have life insurance, it's in case you pass away, right? So we're, we're hoping and, and banking on the fact that you won't, but just in case you do, here's you know, money that will go to your family. In the case of health insurance, you can productively you know, measure how much you're going to spend in any given year if you have a chronic disease, because you know how much your drugs cost, you know how much your doctor is, how often you need to see them. And so when we use health insurance the way we currently do, we spend a lot of money up front on something that we know we'll use. And I think the system itself is, is a bad way of paying for care when it's so predictable. Yeah. Talking to Elise Amidro. Uh, we're going to take a quick break on her tell. When we come back, we're going to have a grown folk talk about health care. We're going to get past the buzzwords, uh, government funded health care, private sector health care. We're going to get into what we're going to do because this hybrid model we got has made a big old mess. More with Elise Amidro right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing to talk a little healthcare today with our friend Ali Amidro from Young Voices. Um, she's been overseas on her undergrad. She went to Duke for her master's. Very smart uh, lady. Like I told you before, I'm a huge fan of Duke's hospital system because I was a patient of it for a very long time. When I talk healthcare, let, let, let's turn the buzzwords off because we talk about single payer and free markets. Let, let's just have an adult grown folk talk for a second. I, when we talk about healthcare, I always tell people two things. I was like, look, I've lived in Europe. I've been in European hospitals. I've seen the taxes they pay and I see the healthcare they get. I'm also a VA patient. So I know the largest integrated healthcare system in America, and we need all that money and the third largest department of government to take care of 9 million people. The numbers on this stuff don't match up. What are we going to actually do to try to improve this? Because this hybrid um, insurance, private sector, government, everybody agrees that it's got a lot of limitations and the problems are only going to get worse. You argue in your piece that one of this would be to empower the individuals where they don't have to go through an employer and they don't have to go through the government at all. Why do you feel like that would be a good medium ground to try to break through some of the hybrid mess gridlock that we've got going on right now? I think Americans want to be empowered to make their own choices. Um, this is a different mindset than in other countries around the world. And even in, in Europe, where people might be more comfortable, like you said, with higher taxes and then just letting the government take, take care of things. I think we have a distinct mentality here about how we go about taking care of ourselves. And the employer-sponsored model gets in the way of that. Because if I have insurance through my employer, I'm stuck there. And I need to find insurance elsewhere through another job if, if that's, you know, if I want to change jobs, I will lose my current coverage. Actually, it's possible to take the coverage with you and you're going to be spending 15 to $20,000 to do that. Like while you're finding, you know, looking for a new job perhaps. So it's completely unaffordable. What we should have is a way of having these benefits be portable. So if you have insurance, you can take it anywhere with you. It doesn't depend on your job. The reason why we have employer sponsored insurance right now is like I said earlier, 
the there's an employer um, tax exemption on spending on health insurance. And so that, ex, uh, that exemption should be applied to people, not to, to companies, because that would actually allow for this flexibility. And, and one word about international um, you know, models, we can look all we want to other countries. We can say, oh, if only we had you know, a system like, like the British system or like Singapore, which is a system I, I personally kind of like, this is just not how it's done. We can't just overnight uproot everything we have here and, and switch to a different model, even if that's what we wanted. We have a system that is the way it is. And so we are bound to make changes that will go towards something better, but we can't just overnight change everything. So we have to be realistic. At the end of the day, what is it that we can do? And I think those kinds of changes can actually be really meaningful. If we make those benefits portable, if we give people agency over their healthcare dollars, then we start getting somewhere that is both aligned with our values and also financially responsible. Right. And you work in uh, the healthcare field. You do consulting on this. The other side of that, of course, is the only way you're going to guarantee that portability is the government's going to have to have some kind of a hand in it. How would you see legislation going where you have a government powerful enough to protect people from their employers, from uh, the Medicare, Medicaid system itself in some cases, because the states have different rules? How do you have a government that has that much power, but is also still going to be able to give some individuality and some freedom to these folks to get things like those tax benefits? Because the we've already seen with things like ACA, our legislative branch loves these big sweeping regulations. They love big sweeping bills. They're just going to say, well, why don't we just cut out the middleman and we'll just control the whole thing? That would be the concern with that is that they'll go for the one and you wind up with the other. How do you think that could work legislatively if you could get it done? Well, I think we've done it in some regards already when it comes to Medicare. So Medicare used to be just a pure administrative um, top-down system, right? So Medicare would say, I'm going to reimburse doctors for every single service that they provide to a Medicare beneficiary. And that's still the case for many beneficiaries. But now, um, since fairly recently, people can switch to what's called Medicare Advantage. So instead of taking what the government offers them, they'll find a private plan that gives them coverage um, that's usually much more generous than what the government gives. And then the federal government reimburses those plans a flat, a flat fee a, a year to, to, care, to take care of those patients. So it can actually be done. This has led to more competition because there are many providers, uh, many uh, health insurers that offer Medicare Advantage plans. It's given flexibility and more uh, agency to patients on it. So I think there are ways um, in that regard that work. And like you said, for um, to change the portability, I think it's simply changing, you know, Congress, if, if, that, if that is what they want to do um, to reform the portability, they could change the rules around the employer exemption. I think it can be done. Yeah. Uh, talking to Elise Amidro, our friend from Young Voices, healthcare expert, as you can tell from having listened to her for the last 18 minutes. Uh, let's talk about that for a second, though, because Medicare expansion is wildly popular. Um, it every, every time it goes on the ballot, it almost always passes even in deep red states. Do you see some way you just mentioned it's already been retooled some from the original bureaucratic system that it started out as? Is one of the paths forward just going to have to involve Medicare expansion because it's so popular, it's not going to get parred down. No politician is ever going to touch that. Uh, there, there's going to have to be some element of that somehow. Is it going to be scalable enough to solve 
what, 30% of this problem, 50% of this problem? Where do you see that going? Because obviously that's the direction the people are going. The politicians are going to follow them. Where's that leading when it comes to this healthcare discussion, do you think? That's a good question. So I was talking about Medicare Advantage, which is for seniors. The Medicaid expansion is for people who are low income or people who have disabilities. So for, for those people, um, you, like you said, there is the expansion. So states are moving to extend Medicaid benefits to more people than were originally on it before the ACA, before Obamacare. You're right. It's a very popular um, policy at the state level. Now, states are finding out that it's a lot more costly than they expected. The federal government reimburses states for the money that they spend on Medicaid beneficiaries. But as it's turning out, it's it's been a lot less affordable for states than they expected. So I think this is one reason for which some states are not going to adopt or going to delay adoption of the expansion for a while. But my view for Medicaid is actually it should become much more efficient. Um, it, there's a lot of bloat in it, um, a lot of ways in which Medicaid beneficiaries are not taken care of very well. And uh, Medicaid should be for people who are truly in need, truly indigent, cannot work. Um, cannot you know take care of, of their family without without Medicaid being available. But for everyone else, what we want is incentives for people to get off Medicaid because private insurance works better. Um, it's much better to be on a private plan than it is to be on Medicaid because you're kind of at the mercy of the the state, um, which is never never a good thing. So I think the types of reforms there are, are different, but program integrity, just more transparency in Medicaid would go a long way. Yep. And here we are right back to talking about cost again, which, you know, every time you talk about healthcare, we come back to the cost. No matter which way you talk about it, more government, less government, more private, less private. How big of a piece of all this, if we're going to have any kind of a coherent, consistent system of healthcare in America, goes to they've got to figure out some way to have transparent pricing and level pricing across the healthcare system because that's really where all the holes where all the good intentions fall into, isn't it? Because there's just n- nobody knows what they're paying until after they get charged. Then they spend years fighting it. Insurance don't cover it. It does cover it. Th- this is really the maelstrom that's driving all the churn in the healthcare system right now is that um, I don't even know what term you want to use. The lack of transparency in the billing. I know the regulation makes it that way in a lot of cases. It's not all the hospital's fault, but the hospitals are perfectly happy to cash the checks at the same time. Talk about that for folks that maybe don't fully understand it or, or who have never had like I've gotten where I've got five, six year old medical bills still showing up. Talk about why that's such an important piece, because all this other stuff doesn't work if they don't straighten that part of it out, because it's just like being in debt. If you never get out of debt, you never fix anything anyway, right? Exactly. The The problem with the lack of transparency is that we don't ever buy anything else without knowing how much it's going to cost. You can't make a decision without knowing how much something's going to cost. Like if someone says, do you want to spend you know, a week at the Ritz on the beach? That sounds great. Oh, how much is it? Oh, wait, I can't afford it. Like You will make a decision when you have all the facts and it's not just enough to know that it's going to be good quality. So in the same way for healthcare, People can't make meaningful decisions. And when you can't make a meaningful decision, you're not really in charge of the care that you get. You're not really in charge of your your course of action. And it also makes you less responsible because if someone knows that they can get, you know, if if there's a financial incentive for you to stay healthy, you will also want to take care of yourself, want to to, um, improve your your health status. So for all these reasons, um, transparency is very important. I don't think we can have cost savings, but I don't think we can have also better quality of care 
without people knowing how much things are going to cost ahead of time and then making a fully informed decision. Yeah. Talking to our friend, Elise Amidro uh, about healthcare. All right, let's, let's do some nomenclature real quick to kind of put a bow on this. When folks are talking about healthcare on their social media or just in their conversation, I think the buzzwords have absolutely destroyed this conversation in a productive way. Um, people go immediately to socialized medicine or they start talking about, you know, single payer if they really want to sound like they know what they're talking about, even though they probably don't. What's some better terminology that people should be throwing out there that will drive discussion as opposed to just when you say socialized medicine, that wall goes up immediately. What's some terminology people need to talk about? You already mentioned transparency and pricing. That's a good one. But give, give folks a couple things that they can talk about, you know, even the folks that are maybe on the a different ideological side than them, and they can kind of start changing their language in these conversations and see if we can get them a little more productive. Yeah. So one would, one would be patient empowerment or patient choice. Just, you know, the determination that you make for your own care. Um, and, and another one, one that I said earlier, maybe a, a bit wonky or not, not, as, not as fun, but um, portability, just having access to something that's portable that I, you, you can take with you. Um, and then, yeah, just options, more options, like healthcare options. Uh, I think we, we, as soon as we go into a universal healthcare kind of system, as soon as we go for socialized medicine, we lose those options. And I think people value them a lot more than they realize. And it's only when they go away that people start missing them and realizing how much they were valuing them prior to them going away. Yeah. To put a bow on this and bring it back to the beginning of what your article is all about. Um, we've had kind of this static uh, status quo since about the ACA or Obamacare went into effect. It's been about 12 years. You pointed out in your piece that's good in a lot of ways because things haven't gotten overly measurably worse at the same time. But we also understand time stops for nobody. Uh, how long can this go in this current state before we start seeing real problems? Because we're seeing some strain on the system just from the fact that, you know, inertia moves us forward, but there hasn't been any new regulation. How long can this go before there's going to need to be a real serious overhaul just out of necessity? Because I know a lot of people, the, the accusation during ACA from the Republican side was, well, they're building this to fail to collapse the system or 12 years down the road. That hasn't quite happened yet. But at the same time, this can't go on forever. Give us a little bit of a time frame and give us some of the things to watch for of like, okay, we need to get in here and do some uh, remodeling one way or the other. Year is 2026. In 2026, uh, a big chunk of Medicare, the, the part that pays for hospital services, is going to be bankrupt. So we won't have a choice at that point. Congress will have to act uh, to, to change things. And then the other parts of Medicare, too, are, are even worse. So it, sooner or later, for Medicare beneficiaries, at least people who are 65 and over, they will have to see their benefits decrease. So say something that used to be covered won't be covered anymore, or um, they will get fewer um, you know, drugs covered and things like that. We'll feel that this decade. So there's no time to lose. There's a lot of a lot of reforms that should happen sooner than that so that the, the shock is less violent when it happens. All right. I asked you and you gave me the specific date, uh, 2026. Of course, it's a midterm election year. They probably did that by accident, I'm sure. Uh, Elise Amidro, outstanding information on healthcare stuff. This situation ain't going to go. You just said it. We've got a ticking time bomb that we're going to deal with this one way or the other. I'm sure they're going to wait till the last minute. Um, until we get you back on to talk about this some more, let folks know where they can follow you, where you're writing, your social media and all that until we see you again on Hurtel again. Yes, I'm, I'm actually 
pretty offline. I'm, I don't have a Twitter, but I do have LinkedIn. So you can find me there, Elise, E-L-I-S-E, and then Amedro, A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z. And you can just follow me on LinkedIn. I have a creator profile that you can easily follow. Fantastic. She's also on the Young Voices page. You can find her there. They have all kinds of stuff, including some clips of her doing things. And this clip will be up there. Uh, Elise, thank you so much for the insight. Really appreciate it. Hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Welcome back to Hertel. I want to highlight something that was written by our buddy, Dennis Saunders. Uh, he is a frequent contributor to both Ordinary-Times.com, where this piece is posted uh, on Friday's edition. Please go read it, Ordinary-Times.com. Make sure you're following Dennis, too. And he's on this program multiple times. We're looking forward to getting him on again. I've already reached out, see if he wants to come on and talk about this particular piece. Um, but he's writing about the big tent. We used to talk about big tent in politics. You want to get as many people into your party as possible into the big tent. Problem is big tents don't fundraise as much as intense smaller tents. He's working off Bill Bishop's book about the big sort. And he wrote this in Ordinary Times. And I want you to listen to what he's saying. And just for uh, full disclosure here, he cites me in this piece as well, but that's not the main reason I'm doing it. Although I really appreciated him citing uh, one of the earliest pieces I ever wrote. And in fact, it's the piece that really kicked off my writing career, which led to my media career, which led to me sitting right here doing her tell with you. It's cited, it's linked in the piece, go find it. Uh, I'd appreciate it, but I want you to listen to his words. Dennis Saunders writing in Ordinary Times here. This sorting is taking place at all levels of American society. Remember when I talked about how the families of representatives and senators lived in DC and they mingled regardless of party affiliation? That's not the case anymore. The collegial atmosphere in Congress started to change through the 80s and 90s and what to what we see today. While you can't pin it on just one person, it's important to note that the former House Speaker Newt Gingrich is a notable role in stripping away civility and turning Congress into the partisan jungle where Republican representatives are pilloried by colleagues and receive death threats because they vote for a Democratic infrastructure bill. And the senators who voted for the first African-American woman to the Supreme Court were deemed by members of their own party of being, quote, pro-pedophile. Twitter may have made it easier to spew this hate, but it was not the instigator. America's when we're in the thrall of conspiracy theories well before Twitter and Facebook. Do you remember the stories about Ohio after 2004 election? Do you remember former Congressman Ron Paul's newsletters, which were filled with conspiracies and racism? In the sorting of America into red and blue and not social media, that has made American culture a little more stupid than before. Social media was a vehicle, but it's not the main cause. We live in an age where we no longer want to persuade. We, when we want to speak to our own side more than try to persuade others, our brains get dull. We no longer have to think about why we think about our beliefs is better than your belief. We are no longer exposed to other beliefs that make us think about our own beliefs and maybe reconsider what we have always believed. We go from towering intellectual giants to crass hacks. Politically pure cultures lead to inbreeding, and that leads to a lower form of discourse, one that is not only dumb, but it's mean. It's also important to note that social media isn't all bad. It can bring people together. Then this is the part where he cites me. We'll skip that just because, um, believe it or not, I don't really like talking about myself so much. But Dennis ends this way. America has been splintering from the mass culture for at least 30 years. It has happened gradually over the years and in the last decade, and it happened all at once. Social media made it happen all at once, but it was going on for a long time. 
If you want to have a more holistic society, one that is more of a big tent than the fragmented society we have now, we have to do more than go after Facebook or YouTube. Our society has been fraying for years. We need to find ways to re-knit it, our society that's going to take time. No, that doesn't mean we are going to go back to three networks and all the other hallmarks of past mass culture, but we can find ways to create new institutions that would welcome a wide swath of culture and not just a narrow sliver of society. Social media isn't innocent in how our society is developed, but it's also not the sole problem. If we want to move away from a dumb and mean culture, we need to find ways to recreate the Big Ten. Thoughts worthy of chewing on? We're going to have Dennis Saunders come on the program in the coming days to discuss this further. A man I greatly respect, whether we agree or disagree, he always makes me think. And we'll be back with more Hurtel right after this. We're going to end this week and every show with some good news. Uh, This is a cool little story from CNN. When a Massachusetts woman ordered a pizza on a routine Friday evening, she had no idea the quick thinking and kindness of her delivery driver would change her life that night. Karen Hubert Sullivan put in the call for a late dinner on February the 11th and DoorDash driver Sophia Furtado brought the order to the address in the small community of West Island Fairhaven, located on Buzzards Bay, about 20 miles southeast of Fall River. It was a normal night for me, Furtado told CNN. It was almost the end of my shift, but when she got to the house around 10 p.m., she spotted Sullivan lying on the ground outside, bleeding from her head. Sullivan, who had a previous arm injury and a bad knee, had been waiting outside for the delivery. As she turned, her arm and knee gave out. She fell and hit her head on the way down. I just remember laying in my driveway thinking, this is pretty much over. I'm laying there, and I saw a whole lot of white clouds for Tato. Had previous medical knowledge from her time training as an emergency medical technician, but had failed the National Registry test. She noticed Sullivan's blood was congealing and estimated she had been lying outside maybe as much as 15 or 20 minutes. Karen was unresponsive and her eyes kept rolling in the back of her head. Furtado said, I felt like I was going to lose her. Sullivan's husband, Robert, had been asleep inside the house, but awoke to Furtado's calls for help. She told him to get some supplies as she dialed 911. According to Officer Jim Jodine, of the Fairhaven Police Department, Furtado spoke with the dispatcher while rendering aid. At that moment, Sophia became part of our team to aid Karen, Jodine said to CNN. I asked her if it was possible for her to keep stabilizing Karen's neck to keep her spine safe. Her answer was, I'm not going anywhere. Thank God she was there. If she hadn't been there, I'd been dead, Sullivan told CNN. Soon after, officers and medics began arriving. Furtado stayed with her until Sullivan was transported to the hospital. Sullivan said she was in the hospital for about three weeks. She had been suffering from two separate severe brain bleeds. Robert and her daughter, Veronica, were by her side the entire time. At one point, she said the two of them were waiting until 2 a.m. to see if they were make it. Long story short, uh, despite the terrifying experience, Sullivan and Furtado gained a friendship through the trauma. I'm so thankful for her. She's like my guardian angel, Sullivan said. Thank God she was there. Uh, Sullivan each gave Furtado's two children Easter gifts. Uh, Furtado was awarded $1,000 from DoorDash and a life-saving award from the Fairhaven Police Department. Uh, we are incredibly grateful to Ms. Furtado and stepping in during a critical moment, and we are relieved that the customer has safely recovered, DoorDash spokesman said. Her care and quick response were nothing short of heroic, and we are honored to be able to show our appreciation for her tremendous efforts. Um, the recognition came as a surprise. Furtado had previously been a DoorDash driver and picked up the job again in January. She said she hopes to use the money towards more EMT school when her family becomes more financially stable. She and Sullivan added they will continue to stay in touch. 
and plan to meet up again. Good story to end. Anytime you can help someone, it's a good thing. After all, we are all we get a lot of the times with each other. Let's take care of each other a little bit better. That'll do it for her tell for today. That'll do it for the week. Uh, don't forget, we'll do the twice on Sunday show on Sunday morning. That's a recap of all the interviews. And boy, did we have some great interviews this week. Strong, strong guests. Busy week in the news cycle. I think we did a pretty good job of turning down the noise on it. We're going to keep working hard on it because times like these, that's what we need. More grown folk talk, more discerning our times, less caterwauling, less reacting to the news, more staying ahead of it and knowing what's really going on in the world we inhabit. So until we see you again, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you again soon on Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.